very few people in this country know much about our imperial history. And so, so when zealous, uh, noisy, aggressive folk tell them that it was a litany of racism and, and oppression, they, they, they don't know enough to contradict them. And also what they do know is it's, it doesn't look good mm. uh, if you contradict what appears to be the progressive view. Because then you too will get, get labelled as being racist or uh, colonial apologist or whatever. So there's nothing, there was nothing exceptional about the British involvement in slavery. Uh, what was exceptional and extraordinary was that toward the end of the 18th century, the idea that uh, owning other human beings as property began to be questioned on principle. Britain was among the first states in the history of the world to abolish the slave trade and then to abolish slavery. And it then led the world in suppressing both of those, as I said, from Brazil across Africa to, to Malaysia. That was extraordinary. No other state had done that before. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our terrific returning guest today is an ethicist at the University of Oxford and, of course, the author of his latest book, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning. Nigel Bigger, welcome back to Trigonometry. I'm pleased to be back. Uh, thank you so much. And this time you are on our set, on our turf. Uh, last time <laughs> we, we came to you. I'm really impressed. Um, well, thank you very much for coming back. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, your book is out. It's caused quite a stir. It's done very well. Sunday Times bestseller several weeks in a row, et cetera, et cetera. Um, without any further ado, uh, what is your book about? And what was the case that you wanted to make? So, so the book is a response um, to a fashionable uh, view, namely that um, European colonialism and in particular British colonialism was a litany of, of racism and economic exploitation and unwarranted violence. So it, it was simply evil. And uh, at the extreme, you'll find people trying to, to approximate uh, British imperial endeavour uh, with Nazism, so um, accusing British colonialists of of um, genocide and and such like. Uh, so the book is a, is a response to that, and it argues that yes, like like any long-standing state, be it national or imperial, the British Empire c contained evils and goods. It it it, it contained, for example, 150 years worth of of engagement enslaved trading and in slavery, but also subsequent to that, uh, it, it was among the first states in the history of the world to abolish the trade and the institution, and then Britain led the world in suppressing it from Brazil across Africa to Malaysia. So goods, goods and evils like, like most states. Uh, and th there's no way of, of kind of um, balancing up the goods and evils and saying, well, so many years of anti-slavery compensates for so many years of slavery, that, that doesn't make sense at all. But what I go on to say is, well, uh, uh, no, you, you can't uh, identify um, the British Empire with Nazism in any respect. It wasn't essentially uh, racist or exploitative. And then you add to that the fact that uh, there were um, persistent uh, humanitarian and liberal threads to imperial policy, anti-slavery. Uh, and then from, from about... 
1860s onwards, the, the empire learnt from the fact that it lost the American colonies in the 1780s and was committed to making Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand independent, and they were virtually independent by 1930, and India was put in the same track at the end of the First World War. Um, and then the final thing, I, the point I make, is that the fact that the empire um, was committed to fighting the massively murderous and uh, essentially racist regime in, in Nazi Germany, um, and, and from May 1940 to June 1941, it was the only um, military opposition to Nazism, with the exception of Greece. That fact tells you something about the, the fundamental values of the, of, the, of the empire, notwithstanding uh, all sorts of injustices and and evils and uh, elements of racism within the empire. Mm. And Nigel, I know we touched on this last time. Before we we talk about the British Empire specifically, I, I've I've been reading a lot of uh, in in the context of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, and I was I've been reading a Russian uh, guy called Alexander Dugin. Oh yes, uh, don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with him. I am. Uh, but w- w- one of the things he's part of this movement in Russia, these so-called New Eurasians. Uh, and his, he, it's funny reading him because his book was written not that long ago, I think in 2000. And he goes, Russians are an imperial people. We must be expanding in order to survive and to exist. Can you talk to us? About, because I think part of the reason we have this one dimensional conversation about this issue is we seem to have forgotten that other countries had empires too. Yeah. Can you talk to us about empires in general? What, what are they? Why do, why do they exist? Who creates them? What is, what is the rationale for building uh, a, a, a country that is essentially not a nation state, but it's a combination of different ethnicities and different relationships to each other? Tell us about that. Yeah, good point. So um, you're quite right. Uh, the focus certainly in, in America and, and in this country is on European empires and white empires and British empire in particular, whereas uh, empire has been a um, an historical phenomenon since the um, 4000 BC in in uh, um, Mesopotamia, uh, um, Arabs did it, Africans did it, the Chinese still do it, the Comanche did it in, in the southwest of the U.S. and uh, of what's now the U.S. in the 1800s. Uh, so there, there's a strange focus on European empires, which we could talk about. Um, what is empire about? I mean, often it's, it's about security. So t- take Anglo-Saxon England uh, in the... Um, I don't know, the um, 700s, 800s, 900s uh, AD in England, you have uh, lots of little kingdoms. Their borders are insecure. Um, uh, they're, they're subject to raids from outside uh, the island. And so um, uh, in order to, to secure their borders, they have to make sure that the people around them are under their control. And sometimes that would involve expanding, so you, you impose your government on them. And so in a sense, many nation states, many old nation states, um, ex- were, are the creations of, of series of expansions. Um, um, and, and so eventually you end up with, with by about 1000, England is a virtually a single nation state. But then in, in the uh, 14th century, um, you get English kings conquering Wales and then Ireland. So often security is is a, a main motive. But then in the case of the, the British Empire, uh, trade, a major motive. So that's that's the main reason. 
The first reason why the British ended up in uh, Africa and um, in India. And then you've also got, ironically, you've got, you've got anti-imperial endeavours. So one reason the uh, English first pitched up on the coast of North America was uh, to set up um, um, uh, posts uh, or ports from which uh, English raiders could, could raid Spanish shipping at a time when imperial Spain, Catholic Spain, was threatening little Protestant England. So the, the, the motives for, for empire are, are various. Um, and you mentioned the, the, Russian, the current Russian example. So I guess some, some uh, proponents of empire think that uh, um, a certain piece of territory belongs to them uh, by, by right or by nature or something. So Ru some Russians think the Ukraine is a, an eternal part of Russia, regardless of what Ukrainians think, and, and they feel they own it. Uh, but but um, it, it's hard to generalize because that wouldn't be true of every empire. It may not even be true of the Russian empire as, as a whole. Um, but there are a variety of, of motives. Nigel, do you ever find it frustrating the way that we talk about history nowadays? Because it seems to me that we have people arguing about history who don't really understand history, have never been taught it properly. Yes, I feel uh, frustrated sometimes by the level of ignorance. And I'm quite sure that uh, the reason why um, the decolonizing movement has taken root in so many of our institutions, um, particularly since the Black Lives Matter movement crossed the Atlantic in 2021, I think. 2020. 2020, even earlier than that. Um, the reason it, it, it got traction was very few people in this country know much about uh, um, our imperial history. And so, so when zealous, uh, noisy, aggressive folk tell them that it was a litany of racism and, and oppression, they, they, they don't know enough to contradict them. And also what they do know is it's, it doesn't look good mm. uh, if you, if you, um, if you um, contradict what appears to be the progressive view because then you too will get, get labelled as being racist or uh, a colonial apologist or whatever. So that's, that's part, the ignorance is, has been a problem. And one thing, even if, if a reader doesn't agree with the argument in my book, I, I hope that at least the book will lay out uh, the full story, the whole story of the British instance of, of empire and, and show people that it, it did contain good bits as well as bad, and it was really quite complicated and nuanced. Uh, so there's that. The, the other thing that's odd is, um, and I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but uh, an attitude to, to the past as if it ought to be the same as us. <laughs> <laughs> I get really annoyed with, with um, uh, television programs or, or films that assimilate the past to us. So th there was a there was a, a film about Emily Bronte made recently. Was it just called Emily? Uh, where the, the 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 story is that um, so Emily Bronte in the nineteenth century wrote this book at Wuthering Heights, which is is full of 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 um, romance and, and sexual passion. And the um, the filmmaker decided that. Um, Emily couldn't possibly have written this unless she herself had had a serious uh, um, uh, fling uh, and she herself had personal experience of, of some sexual affair. Um, so so the, the film tells the story about Emily along those lines. 
The problem is there is no historical evidence at all to suggest that's true. Uh, Emily um, conjured the story out of her own imagination. Um, but, but a 21st century filmmaker just, just can't cope with that. <laughs> so it so has, to, has to make Emily, Emily like a 21st century person. But, but the thing is, that, uh, what, what I find interesting about the past is its difference. Mm. And when you come up against you know, the fact that Emily never married, never apparently had sex as far as we know, and yet she was able to imagine the story, that's interesting. Um, and what's interesting is it, 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 it challenges our assumptions, which makes it interesting and co- should cause us to think about the, the assumptions and the things we take for granted. But, um, so it's, it's so much safer to assimilate the past to the present because yeah. then you don't, you don't have to think about it. It's, it's a very interesting point you made. It's almost that we can't believe that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was 18 years old. <laughs> Unless she had some kind of experience of monsters. But anyway... <laughs> Let's, let's tackle some of the really difficult bits of, of the empire, because the one thing that people will say is the British traded in slaves. Yep. They had slaves for many, many years. That's how they generated huge amounts of wealth. This is obviously awful. Nigel, how can you possibly defend it? Okay. So, so, so let me make clear. Mm. I do not approve of slavery. Can we just... Just, just get to have that clear. Any, any, any doubt, folks. Uh, okay. Uh, let, let's, let, let's take that for granted. Um, um, but we have to... And this is related to the, to the very last point. We have to take on board the fact that um, slavery and trading in slaves was a universal institution almost from the dawn of time. Um, so long before Europeans got into it, and the Portuguese were the first in, in the 1440s, um, in, in terms of, of trading in Africans, although there was slavery. I mean, uh, Bristol was a slave market in, in, the, uh, in the medieval period. Irish slaves being traded to, to, to Norsemen, who then, and then took them down the Volga to the Black Sea. So there's lots of, of slave trading uh, around Europe, but also... Uh, Africans were involved in, in trading other Africans as slaves to the Romans and then, and then to the Muslim Arabs. Um, the Comanche, the Indian, the, the Amerindian people who uh, dwelt in the southwest of what's now the United States, um, according to one eminent historian, uh, ran a vast slave economy in the 1700s. And then the, um, 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 in the 1700s in Jamaica, when, when, es- when slaves escaped from the plantations and went into the forested interior, the mountainous interior of Jamaica, they were called maroons. They often held slaves of their own. And I was in, I was in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina in January, visiting my, my wife's family there. And I went to the uh, Museum of the History of North Carolina which told me that um, on the eve of the American Civil War in 1860, there were 30,000 freed slaves in the state of North Carolina, some of whom owned slaves of their own. And my point is, um, we have to accept the fact that for many people, even former slaves, owning slaves was acceptable or normal. And, uh, and even if you, um, you might well, uh, uh, um, if you were in the 18th century, 19th century, you might well object to cruel and inhuman forms of slavery, and yet still think that slavery was a kind of a fact of life. 
So we, we just have to accept that uh, and get, get our heads around it. it. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone until us was morally corrupt and, and, and uh, um, um, morally insensitive. Um, so th that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, so there's nothing, there was nothing exceptional about the British involvement in slavery in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, what was exceptional and extraordinary was that toward the end of the 18th century, um, um, partly because of, of Enlightenment views, mainly because of uh, Christian views, um, the idea that uh, owning other human beings as property began to be questioned on principle. And so in 18, 1787, you get the, the, the creation of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery in England. Um, I think Denmark was the first state in Europe to abolish the slave trade within its limited territories. Um, um, Britain followed uh, three years later, 1807. Uh, and, uh, and then in 1833, the empire abolished slavery as an institution within its territories. So, so let me just make this clear because um, at the moment, in recent years, we've been encouraged in Britain to, to uh, look again at the horrors of slavery in which our ancestors were involved for 150, 200 years, as if nothing had changed. Uh, so so the, 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 the fact that Britain was among the first states in the history of the world <laughs> to abolish the slave trade and then to abolish slavery, and it then led the world in suppressing both of those, as I said, from Brazil across Africa to, to Malaysia. That was extraordinary. No other state had done that before. Uh, no other states had done that before. Certainly not in Africa, certainly not in Asia, nor in, um, among the indigenous peoples of North America. That was extraordinary. And, and we carried on doing that for uh, until the end of the empire in the, in the 1960s. And in the 1820s and 30s, the slavery trade department in the British Foreign Office was the largest unit. Um, and in the 1830s or the 40s thereabouts, 13% of the total manpower of the Royal Navy was devoted to, um, um, into, in, in, to stopping uh, slave ships leaving West Africa for the Americas, uh, just stopping that, quite apart from stopping slavery elsewhere. Um, so I do think we need to remember the, the, the fact that we couldn't undo what we'd done for 200 years worth of, of, of enslaving all we could do was stop it and then try and stop it elsewhere. Um, so I, I think we need to remember the bit of history that's closest to us. Nigel, isn't there one reason that perhaps it's hard to see things in that way? And that is, although I, I, I have a whole chapter in my book about this as well, and the points you make, I make too. Right. But the one thing that I think we could all agree was somewhat different about the British Empire is because it was technologically the most sophisticated nation in the world at the time, it had technology that allowed it to transport people in a way and to places that previously people would have struggled to do. The idea that you could transport millions of people across the Atlantic Ocean, really, that was that would have been unavailable to almost anybody. And so even though we know that the trans-Saharan slave trade, which took slaves from sub-Saharan Africa to the, to the Maghreb, to the Middle East, uh, 
it lasted longer and had more people and they were treated far worse, by the way. But it doesn't have the same imagery in our minds as people being stuffed into the hold of a of a ship in terrible conditions and being sailed to a completely foreign land uh, and dumped there and forced to, to work in the plantations. Isn't that one of the reasons that just as human beings, we, we feel a very strong reaction to, to what we're being told? That's a fair point, Constantine. Um, just to be clear, the British didn't start that. The Portuguese were doing that. Mm. Uh, they were transporting slaves to the um, uh, was it the Canary Islands, um, just off the coast of West Africa in the 1440s. So yes, Europeans who had developed the naval technology to transport goods and people across oceans, uh, I, I suppose that may have been the first time that had happened. And the conditions in the slave ships were horrendous. And the wastage, the human wastage, the, 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 the percentage of enslaved Africans who died en route was, was high. Uh, although it, for, for commercial reasons, uh, um, those trading in slaves um, improved conditions such that the number of people dying on the ships declined. Still doesn't excuse it. So that, that's, that's probably true. Um, um, so, so the the conditions on the ship on the slave ships were uh, horrendous, um, but I think um, so. Notwithstanding that, I guess my point, Nigel, is sorry, but I feel I've sidetracked you a little yep. bit. Is it's almost like you're right. Everybody had slaves, and in fact, in, in the research that I did, uh, somebody argued actually that slaves were the first good that people ever traded, potentially. Interesting. But my point is, it's almost like this is going to sound crass and deliberately so, because I'm trying to make the point. It's like everyone did it, but the British Empire was just better at it. And that's why we're more perhaps ashamed, because we did it on quite a large scale and very effectively. Um, yes, that, that, that might be the case. Although I think one shouldn't downplay the, the horrors of the um, slave trade across Africa. And when, when Europeans like David Livingston witnessed it, it was just horrible. Smaller in scale, I, I grant you. Nor should we downplay the, the horrors of being um, enslaved and carted off to the coast of North Africa, ended up in a slave galley. Um, um, uh, that wasn't pretty either. Or a eunuch or a sex slave, if you're yeah, a woman. Yeah, so, yeah. But, but uh, your point's well taken. And there were forms of slavery in the Ottoman Empire, domestic slavery, which were uh, more humane. So certainly uh, more. Th there were more and less humane forms of slavery. And the, the, the one in which the Europeans, not just the British, engaged transporting people across the Atlantic and then the slave plantations w w was among the worst. Yep. I mean, what we're talking about is absolutely horrific and it, it, it leaves its stain. So in, in many ways, do you have a sympathy with, with these people who are overtly critical of the empire and can't really look past that because it is such a dreadful crime, if we're honest. Um, I guess I, I don't, actually. I, I, I don't. Uh, partly because when I look back at history, I think of it, most of it was dreadful. Most of it was dreadful. I mean, so I look back at slavery, having looked at Pol Pot's killing fields, having looked at the Holocaust, having looked at the well, you know, the, the, the millions who lost their lives in German Mao's Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution, having looked at what Stalin did in Russia in the 1930s, um, having considered the Irish famine, having considered... So in other words, history is full of 
um, massive inhumanity. Um, and I, I don't mean to diminish the, mm. the awfulness of, of slavery, uh, but the, you know, if, if, you, if you want to, to get upset about the past, there's an awful lot you can get, get upset about. Um, and I, I still think, I still think, and, and you know, there's, there's nothing you can do, nothing we can do to save those who were enslaved and treated abominably by uh, English or Scottish sailors in the uh, 1700s. We can't undo that. Um, but there was an awful lot of injustice about it. We, we can't undo uh, the, the, the maltreatment of industrial workers in mid-19th-century Victorian England. We can't undo the injustices done to small kids sent up ch- chimney stacks. We all know about that. Um, um, all we can do is, is stop it and, and uh, try and rectify the effects now. And we did stop it. And we did we did try and rectify the the the, the effects, um, and we're still doing that. And it was in, to great financial costs to the British Empire as well. I don't think people also realise that either. I mean, that's controversial. So so um, if you follow the the Marxist um, economic historian um, Eric Williams, his 1940 book Capitalism and Slavery argues that um, the British made um, the, the, the profits that the British made from the trade and slavery was a major um, cause of in Britain's Industrial Revolution taking off. Um, but but I, uh, uh, unless you're a Marxist, uh, that's not that's not a, um, a a popularly held view now. And historians of um, the transatlantic slave trade and economic historians on the whole disagree with that. Um, um, the, the, to your point about the costs of anti-slavery, um, David Eltis, the economic historian, I think has has written that in the period of roughly 1816 to 1860, um, uh, uh, the British spent as much suppressing the slave trade and slavery as they had profited as much in the 50 years before the, the abolition. Um, and as I mentioned, in terms of uh, the Royal Navy, um, 13% of his manpower at one point devoted to the West African squadron. I have read that 17,000 sailors lost their lives, probably from disease, uh, trying to suppress it. Uh, and, and that was just the, just the Atlantic. Um, in, in fact, the empire was involved in, in anti-slavery for 150 years all over. Um, now, now, does that compensate for... 150 years of slavery? Well, no, but but uh, um, what's done is done, uh, and so there's that, that nothing can compensate. Uh, all you can do is is try and do better, and we have done. And Nigel, this is maybe a, I don't know is it an unfair question or not, but I feel like because we have this warped way of looking at history in in the UK and in the West more broadly. What do you think that says about us and, and the stage of our civilization that we're at? This excessive introspection, this this kind of very one-dimensional view of our history. Is it a signal of something? Is it a symptom of some kind of disorder? I don't know. What, what is it? Right. Well, first of all, I think it is dangerous. Um, uh, and the reason I wrote my book and I make that clear in the introduction was political. Um, and and I, I don't pretend I don't have... A political interest here, 
I do try to be fair <laughs> and accurate as far as I can, uh, but I do have a political interest here. And my interest is in, in the confidence and the self-confidence of the West, uh, because I, I in trying to explain why it is that the, the only thing uh, the critics of empire care about are white empires and European empires. Um, why is that? Because I, I take it that the, the record of European empires, and in particular the British one, is a proxy for the record of the West. And it is, I mean, for, for um, in terms of European civilization, from 1815 to 1914, roughly, Britain was the leader. Um, and so um, it, it, it bothers me that the record of the West is being um, traduced, maligned, um, because my, my worry is that it will reduce the faith of contemporary Britons and younger Britons in the West and in Britain as an important, if secondary, pillar of the West. So that is why it matters to me. Um, um, as to what it says about us, I mean, I, I have puzzled over why, I mean, in my book, in, in the, in the, throughout the book, I, I try and demonstrate how certain historians, not all, have uh, taken the evidence and then made um, judgments about the empire that the evidence just doesn't support. So the empire committed genocide in Tasmania or the empire committed um, um, genocide in, in the Western Plains of Canada in the 1880s. And I, 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 I lay this out, and if the reader wants to see the evidence, it's there in the book. And then I say, well, why, 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 what, what propels the judgment way out in advance of the evidence? What's the motive for this? I mean, why go beyond the evidence to make a, a, an unsupported critical claim about British colonialism? Um, and I say to myself, well, um, you know, if, if the evidence, uh, as a committed Briton and as a committed Westerner, if, if, the, evidence, if the evidence requires me, obliges me to accept that my people did awful things in the past, um, then I need to accept that. But why would I, why would I choose to, to believe that my people did awful things in the past if the evidence doesn't require me? And I, I, I speculate as to what might be propelling this, but th there is, um, there's, a, there's clearly on the part of some uh, critics of empire, not just a, a readiness to accept the truth about the past, but a glee that they want to believe the worst. Well, this is why I bring up the point, because the facts are what the facts are, and we've already talked about it. Like all empires, the British Empire committed many atrocities and did many bad things. And like every society in history, it engaged in slavery. However, there is many ways to tell that story. I mean, as you point out yourself, a story could be, this is a, a country that did terrible things. And you leave it there and you say, we're terrible people who must atone forever. Or you could compare it to, to elsewhere and also go make the point that you've made, which is, and then we, we did what we could. And then we tried to deal with this and we tried to end it. And then actually we had to force, for example, countries in the Middle East to stop trading in slaves, a great cost diplomatically, militarily, in human lives and so on. But there is a demand in our society for a particular story about that. And 
I am concerned, as you are, I think, that that is not accidental. The, the demand for that particular narrative comes from a desire to deflate our confidence, to 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 demoralize uh, people in the UK and the West and, and America about their own history. And I just wonder if you had any thoughts on, you know, as a historian, on what happens to societies once they go down that path. Yeah, so uh, I quote in the book... Um a passage from a novel by by an Austrian novelist, Robert Musil. Uh, the novel wasn't completed on its death in 1942. Um, it's called uh, uh, The Man Without Qualities, it's called. And it's set in the, di- it, 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 I think before the First World War, um, on the eve of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And um, I can't remember the, the uh, passage in its entirety, but what he says is this, he says that um, confidence in nations and empires uh, collapses in the same way that it collapses in business concerns when its credit is used up, when its credit is used up. Um, and um, my worry is that if young Britons believe that 300 years worth of British engagement with the world from roughly um, um, 1650 to 1960 was simply a litany of, of racism and oppression, then it's, it's bound to shake their confidence in our institutions that were built. Um, and it's also bound to weaken their resistance to um, um, illiberal threats from Putin's Russia or uh, Xi Jinping's um, uh, China, uh, because the tendency will say, "Well, we're no better than they are," uh, and of course the, the left, which is what a lot of people are saying. Yeah, the, the left, left has been saying this uh, forever, and I think it, this is partly a refrain of the le- of a certain part of the left, the hard left, that actually the West is no better than the East, uh, and th- th- that was said during the Cold War too. Um, and I just, I just think it's wrong. I just think it's wrong, and uh, it's something that. Why? Why is it wrong? You're a moral philosopher and an ethicist. Why, why is that wrong, Nigel? What, aren't they just, you know, Putin would say, you listen to his speeches, says we are an independent civilization with our own traditional values. We do things differently. You know, uh, Russia is a country geographically that's, that requires a different sort of government, yeah, yeah. Uh, different set of values. What, what, why do you say the West is better? And bear in mind as well that people on that side of the left would go, well, what about Iraq? We, it was an illegal invasion. A million people died. And, and the, I mean, that's you look at Vietnam. There's a lot of Western intervention that hasn't been productive and, in fact, is, has been a disaster. Yep. So why are we better? Yep. Um, those are difficult questions. So let's agree that the West has made um, serious mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, Every, as I say, every nation state or collection of nation states will have made serious mistakes. Um, but it, it's still true that, that um, we are committed to a political way of life in which the power of executive government is limited by, by law, effectively limited by law. And that's, that's one of the features of, of um, liberal democratic government that uh, it cannot do the kinds of things that President Putin is doing in Russia. Um, and although President Putin might say, you know, this is the Russian way, there are plenty of Russians 
<laughs> speak for yourself, Constantine, <laughs> who disagree. And, uh, and even if they, plenty of Russians have, are critical of the West, but even plenty of people in Russia and indeed in China, uh, certainly in Hong Kong, um, can see the evils of um, a repressive government that is subject to no effective legal control. Um, so if you believe uh, in, in the, if you believe that um, uh, too much power is a dangerous thing for any state to have, if you believe in the importance of um, having the power of the state curbed by law so that individuals can criticize it or get on with their lives in, in the way they choose, uh, if you believe in uh, a liberal political life, then, then the West, notwithstanding its mistakes, um, is something worth believing in. Um, and there are plenty of people in Russia and China and Hong Kong today that would agree with that. That's, that's my view. <laughs> since, since you asked. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think someone, sorry, Francis, yeah, just, to, crack just to finish this point yeah. is, is I, the reason I ask you is I think we don't articulate that enough. And, and so people forget. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sorry, mate. Well, it's, it's partly because people are saying this, they enjoy these freedoms. And the part, part of my worry about, um, Contemporary Britons who know so little about their history, and, and I was growing up. I grew up in a time when um, you couldn't get out of school without, without having some idea of how we got in Britain to where we are today in terms of uh, national and constitutional development. And, and when I was even before I was ten years old, I was laying reams of dates, so I, I had some idea of the kind of framework. My sense is nowadays young Britons are not taught history that way at all, so they don't have much idea of where this all came from, and so they just take it for granted. And I, I, I do get frustrated when it seems to me a lot of my fellow citizens forget just how extraordinarily fortunate we are in Britain, which now enjoys the greatest security, wealth, health, generally speaking, that we have ever enjoyed, and that, and that compared to most nations in the world, um, we're extraordinary. Uh, so I, I think we need not to take things for granted the way we do. Anyway, sorry. No, no, I would completely agree with that, Nigel. The question that I want to ask you is you've been working in academia for the vast majority of your career. Have most of these ideas come from academia? And what responsibility do you think academia should take for this? Because there's a lot of people who put the blame solely at the door of institutions like Oxford University, Cambridge University, Ivy League. Is that true? Is that fair? So do, do these ideas come from academe? Um, my perception is that uh, these radically critical ideas, uh, many, many of them come from the new left. Uh, they are a certain kind of Marxist idea, um, which ha these ideas have inhabited certain regions of academe uh, for decades. But because of um, particularly Black Lives Matter activism, they, they've moved suddenly to the centre. And as I as I said, because so few, even academics, have any idea about imperial uh, our imperial past, and because they do know that it's not it's not cool to be even suspected of being racist or being pro empire. It's not even cool to be pro Britain, frankly. Uh, they acquiesce. So I, I think. Um, so yeah, some of them have come from from within universities, but um, the activist mood has has given them a kind of has moved them to the centre stage. 
Um, and it, it does it does distress and perplex me that perplex me that that so many of my academic colleagues acquiesce, um, particularly in the notion that, for example, that our universities, like the rest of British society, are systemically racist. When it seems to me there's plenty of evidence to suppose that isn't the case, and that um, um, if there are different outcomes for different ethnic groups, it's 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 not as simple as black, uh, white people do well and black people don't do well. Uh, uh, the evidence is that that ethnic Chinese do better than most white people, and white poor do even worse than the West Indian Britons. So it, it's much more complicated. But there's, there's a strange lack of critical filtering of what comes in. And why is that? Um, well, I mean, you, you could say it's cowardice, a bit of that. It's also that um, um, in academe, as in most institutions that are subject to bureaucracies, all sorts of nonsense comes down from above. <laughs> to, to fight it is exhausting. <laughs> and, and most of the time you think, God, this is nonsense. But... It, it just it's easier to, to swallow it and, and try and find a way around it and tick the box and get on with your life than it is to fight. And particularly when you look around and think, who else is fighting here? And no one is lifting, um, no one is protesting. And you think, oh my God, I'm the only person in the room who thinks this is nonsense. Whereas in fact, nine out of 10 people in the room are thinking just as you are, that no one's saying so. Uh, so it's it's partly um, trying to figure out which battles are worth fighting. I, I'm being charitable here, uh, and then deciding this one isn't, isn't worth fighting. The problem is when you do that again and again and again, I mean, serious nonsense gets entrenched, and then and then the job of trying to dislodge it becomes impossible. Um, and I think that's what's what's going on. Uh, so uh, am I critical of of um, my academic colleagues? Um, Yes, I am. I, I think, I think, there comes a point where you're responsible for allowing serious nonsense to take root. So at the moment, it, it's decolonizing policies, which are which are based on a series of assumptions about racism in Britain today and about what colonial history really was, that are, I think, false. And uh, what is most distressing is that. There's so little critical discussion of this in universities. And I think a lot of uni university professors are betraying all they're supposed to be about. Um, that said, uh, there are signs of resistance that have grown up in the last three years. So it's, the, the cause is not lost here. Um, in the way that it appears to be lost in, in a lot of Ivy League universities in the States, where I'm told, I, I, mean, I, I don't, although I was a graduate student at one in Chicago in the 1980s. I've not taught there, so I don't know what the atmosphere is like now. But it appears as if it would be much harder to resist the uh, decolonizing wave in the States than it is here. Because the problem is, Nigel, like you just said, that if you don't challenge these ideas at the root, then they will work their way in and they will fester and they will take hold to the point where you write a book that is a perfectly legitimate analysis of the British Empire, and it gets cancelled. Why was that? How did that happen? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that wasn't the fault of my academic colleagues. Um, <laughs> uh, you um, could pin almost anything else on them. Yeah, 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 not that one. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, there, there was a, 
And earlier, as we talked about this last time, mm. the uh, the attempt to cancel my Ethics and Empire project in 2017-18, um, that was done by academic colleagues uh, who now uh, um, who now um, adamantly protest that this wasn't a repressive thing at all. But we, we, we won't go back into that. On the book, so what happened with the book was, um, I mean, as we were saying earlier, if only my critics knew um, what good service they performed for me because uh, actually um, because of that, um, the attempt to suppress my Ethics Empire project in December 2017, in um, the spring of 2018, I signed a contract to write a book on colonialism because a publisher came to me and said, how about writing an intelligent person's guide to colonialism, uh, which I agreed to do. So I got a contract out of it. Um, and then what happened was um, I had to produce the manuscript uh, by New Year's, but by the close of December 2020. And so at 3 p.m. on New Year's Eve on 2020, I dispatched the manuscript with a whole nine hours to spare. And then early 21, my uh, commissioning editor wrote back. He'd read the manuscript. He said, he used the word, um, what did he, what was the word? Speechless was the word he used, um, with admiration for the comprehensiveness and the rigor with which I had written. And he said, this is an important book. He said it twice. And he predicted sales of between 15 and 20,000 copies, which may not seem big to you, but... That's a lot, for, yeah. particularly for an academic-leaning book. Well, I, I can tell you, it, it, I, I've been writing books since 1986, and I don't think I've... In total, <laughs> I don't think I've sold more than about 6,000 copies. So that was big, big news for me. So uh, that's where we were in January 21, uh, and he put the manuscripts into the copy-editing process of Bloomsbury Publishing. This is the publisher. They even designed a cover. And then in March 21, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury announcing that uh, they were going to postpone publication indefinitely because, um, and I quote, public feeling is unfavorable. Uh, and I was, I was shocked. I'd feared this would happen because it, it's happened in the States. Um, I was shocked. Um, being a man of a certain age, my, my emotions are about two weeks behind behind me, so I, I wasn't quite sure what I felt. But my wife uh, reports that I was devastated. <laughs> uh, and I do remember lying down in my bed, staring at the ceiling, uh, feeling sorry for myself. Uh, so I was very sorry at the prospect that what I thought was an important contribution to public discourse would never get published. But more depressed at the thought that Britain had come to a place where a publisher, a major publisher, would decline to, to, to publish an important book that selling up to 20,000 copies would make them a profit. Why? Because public feeling is unfavorable. Um, and I was, I was told, uh, uh, I, 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 I inquired, and what does this mean? And I was told, in fact, Bloomsbury wanted me to walk away from the contract. Um, so I decided not to do that. And I engaged them in um, innocent correspondence, and I said innocently, so you say that public feeling is unfavorable? There's lots of public feeling. Which one are you referring to? 
And I said, so conditions are not favourable? Well, when would conditions become favourable? And I was hoping they might actually be honest and tell me in print, but uh, the lawyers probably advised them not to. So um, I got two responses which revealed nothing at all. Uh, and then in early April, notwithstanding the fact they couldn't explain which public feeling was upsetting them, uh, in early April I got an email saying, oh, but we're sure you're impatient to have this book published, so we're going to return your contract to you. Um, and even then I wasn't willing to, to bite. Uh, so I, um, I paid several hundred quid to a, a lawyer in the hope that she might tell me that my, I could hold Bloomsbury to my contract. And uh, several hundred pounds poorer, I discovered I couldn't. <laughs> uh, so then I, uh, then this was about three weeks after I got the email from Bloomsbury, I wrote and said, okay, uh, since you give me no choice, I will receive the contract back. Um, but I want you to know what I think of you. And what I said was, I'm just appalled. I mean, I, I understand publishers need to make money, but, but don't publishers also have a kind of civic duty to keep our liberal space liberal and to, to inject important views into the liberal public space just in case prevailing orthodoxies are mistaken. And I, I maybe that's wrong, but I just it seemed to me that if, if every publisher behaved Bloomsbury, the way Bloomsbury did, we in Britain and our public culture would be severely, severely impoverished. Um, so that's what happened then. And then um, happily, uh, another publisher, uh, William Collins, um, took up what Bloomsbury had thrown away, and I got a con contract in August 21 uh, with William Collins to publish, and they brought it out uh, early uh, in February. Uh, and just before it was published, I decided to share the email correspondence I'd had with Bloomsbury with a journalist who published it in the Times and uh, got a response from Bloomsbury. And their line is that... Uh, 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 Professor Bigger uh, uh, opted to leave his contract. Uh, I, 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 given what I've told you, um, I, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions from that. Because there were, and I, I was listening to another interview you did by way of research, and you intimated that it was some of the younger employees at Bloomsbury who may have instigated this whole thing. Uh, early on, I was told that was the problem that the senior management had been lobbied by younger uh, members of staff who uh, objected to producing Bigger's manuscript. Now, um, I only have that one witness. It was a senior witness mm. from inside the institution. Uh, Blooms Bloomsbury deny that. But the only other explanation they've given, given, namely that I walked away from it, is disingenuous. I, I did walk away with it in the end because they gave me no choice. Mm. And I observed that the phenomenon of junior staff somehow managing to, to cow senior management into vetoing publications um, has, has been a widespread one. We've had, had reports of it in newspapers. So until Bloomsbury come up with a better explanation, uh, that's the most plausible one I have. And what does that say about our society? Let, let, let's remove that, that particular example. But this has happened time and time again. We saw it happen with Jordan Peterson's book where... They, they weren't successful because the publisher aren't, aren't nuts. They know that Jordan's books will sell incredibly well. But what does it say when authors who aren't at the level of Jordan in terms of sales get their books cancelled because junior employees 
who probably haven't even read the manuscript, decide that it's unacceptable? What does that mean for us as a society? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying, really. Um, or just, to me, it's really odd. Uh, I, want to, I want to know, where, where did the grown-ups go? Mm. Uh, and <laughs> 67, so I, I'm accustomed to grown-ups saying no to non-grown-ups, right? Um, we, had a, we had a conference that I ran in Oxford in 2019 on uh, academic freedom under threat, what's to be done. Did, did you come to that? Yeah, we were yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 the first time we met. And um, I remember one of the, one of the kind of um, takeaways from that uh, was the observation one one of the problems is that we we now live in a, in a period when our institutions are are governed by um, a generation of parents who, who lost any sense of having authority over their kids. Now I'm not a parent. Uh, I, I deeply uh, I, I have no end of respect for those who choose to become parents because it seems to be be bloody hard work. Tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but I, I, I take it that sometimes one has to say no to one's kids. One ought to say no to one's kids for one's kids' sake. Um, but I, I get the impression that a lot of parents, middle-class parents, university-educated parents, have difficulty doing that. Why do I say that? Because um, you've got eyes and ears, and if you look around the society, <laughs> you can see it everywhere. Well, I, I, for example, I've, I've heard... Um, I was to- I've, Twice I, I've spoken to teachers in private schools um, and ask them in terms of, I mean, it seems to me that it's really important for kids to learn how to use social media well, how to discriminate uh, and how, you know, and not to spend their whole time plugged into it. And I, I've, I ask teachers of what they do to, to, to help kids manage social media and uh, uh, the technology well. And they say, well, we can do something, but we do think parents ought to do something. But the problem we're facing is that parents come to us and say, uh, would you please tell little Johnny to stop using his iPhone all the time? Because <laughs> I don't dare to. Huh? I don't dare to, says the parent. And this, this, is in, uh, this is the context of a high fee-paying school. So this is presumably a, a parent who is a university education, uh, is, is very wealthy, very successful, doesn't dare say no to Johnny. Now, you know, I don't know how widespread it is, but if that's the, that's the case, then we have a generation of senior publishers who just don't dare say no. Uh, is that it? Or is it also a, a sense that there's a commercial reason to be on the right side of history? I mean, I don't. Well, not in your case. I mean, they predicted that the book well, would sell. And by the way, this is the other thing. I mean, controversy does generate sales. Yeah. So with your book, which was likely to have an element of controversy to it, I don't imagine the financial motive had anything to do with it. On the contrary, I think you're right that, uh, you know, th- these are people who are afraid of telling their junior employees no. Okay, we've heard your opinion and it, it, it's, it's welcome as a contribution, yeah. but we're not going ahead with it. Uh, I think that's probably it. And Nigel, thankfully, you did manage to get the book published. So yeah. there are shoots of some sort of resistance building. What We've got about five minutes left. What was what has the response been like? Uh, and y- yeah. y- the reviews and so on, how have, how have you found that? Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, the responses have been mixed, predictably. Glowing reviews in the Guardian, Nigel. Yeah, no yeah, yeah, that was probably a little too much to hope for, Francis. <laughs> um, so, so uh, very good reviews in the Sunday Times. Uh, mm. Trevor Phillips. Um, uh, uh, um, he, he he used the phrase which I, I love to quote. He said, "This book quote carries the intellectual force of it, an anti." Uh, a javelin anti-tank missile. Mm. I like that. Uh, so a number of good reviews. But last weekend, for example, there was a slew of about four hostile reviews, uh, which eventually I, I steeled myself to read. Um, and, I, and I think I, although I was feeling kind of a bit battered by them, I think I, what I need to accept is the fact that the line I'm pushing, that actually empire is not necessarily wicked, and the British Empire actually... Uh, contain a lot of admirable things, is so unfashionable. Um, the last time when this kind of argument would have been put would have been 50 years ago. And I'm an ethicist. I'm the only ethicist who's ever tried to do it. Um, 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 a current generation of historians is, is going to react to that with instinctive hostility. Besides, um, um, if they didn't, uh, I mean, the cost of approving of bigger in public career-wise, would be high. So they're not going to do that for that reason. So I just have to, have to accept there will be hostile reviews, certainly in The Guardian, in The New Statesman, and elsewhere. Um, but having looked at, at the um, hostile responses, I observe, first of all, so, so a number of folk, um, uh, particularly a fellow called Alan Lester at um, Sussex University, has been very busy on Twitter identifying <laughs> particular historical points I've got wrong and places where I missed the evidence or whatever. So let me be frank here and say, you know, the, the, the canvas of British imperial history alone is vast. Mm -hmm. Lasted 300 years, 1650 roughly to 1960, and runs from Newfoundland to, to New Zealand. It's vast. So um, had I made mistakes? Without a doubt, I made mistakes. Uh, and, and, and when I when I come across them, I will, in due course, uh, correct myself. But I observe that um, um, the attention of, of some of my critics has been at the very kind of micro level, and no one has really taken on, in fact, no one has really paid attention to the larger argument. So, so far, my larger argument stands, uh, the, the kind of argument I've just articulated to you earlier. And I also notice, not for the first time, that in order to take me down, some of my critics have to uh, alleged that I said things I, I never said. So one of them says that Bigger thinks there's a vast array of historians out there who um, who hold these extreme opinions. And I'm sorry to disappoint John Wilson of King's College London, but I didn't write the book for him. I, <laughs> I, I wrote the book. I didn't write the book for historians. I wrote it, wrote it for the primarily for the for the literate British public to to give them some idea that the the uh, the radically anti-colonialist, decolonizing story that the empire was all a litany of racism and oppression is just not true. It's not true to the facts. That's the audience I care about. And um, nor did I claim, I never claimed there was a vast array of historians. There are certainly some. Uh, um, and although Wilson discounts the likes of Caroline Elkins, um, the truth is that Elkins has far more impact than, than Wilson does. So I, I was interested in those historians who have public impact. 
Um, and then, then another reviewer said that I end up saying that the British Empire is essentially humanitarian. I don't say that at all. So, so they, they keep having to erect straw man to, to hit me. And that, that kind of reassures me because you only erect straw man if you can't hit the real target. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still monitoring the, the critics. Um, but uh, so far, uh, uh, that nothing devastating has been produced. And I just observe uh, the fact that uh, the sales of the book have been extraordinarily high. I didn't expect anything like the um, um, response there's been in the Sunday Times bestseller this two weeks running, which is, is really encouraging because it, what it means is there is a, a large public appetite in this country, and I hope when it's published in the, in the, in the US in, in May there too, a large public appetite for something that tries to be reasonable and moderate and careful and even-handed. Nigel, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I finished. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say thank you so much. It was a genuine, it's always a joy to talk to you, and even more so in this interview. Uh, our interviews always end with the same question, which is, what's one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Um, I would say we need to sit back and and think more carefully about our use of words. Uh, so, for example, let, let's have an adult conversation about what, what racism is, what we mean by racism, or when we talk about being harmed by someone else's opinion, or where we talk about someone else's opinion doing us violence. Can we talk about what we mean by violence and harm? Um, because, because a lot of things are, are commonly said that if you sit back and you think, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, I can say things that you find offensive or upsetting, you can say things that I find upsetting. Are you harming me? No, not. Are you doing me violence? No, you're not. So I just think we need to have the courage to think about our language more carefully. That's my. That's my. That's the oversight. I think. Yeah, you correct. still believe words have meaning. Very old-fashioned. <laughs> uh, but on that happy note, Nigel. Uh, Colonialism, a moral reckoning. I hope you get a few more sales off the back of this interview. It's been a great pleasure having you back on the show. Wish you all the very best. And uh, thank you for being here. And thank you guys for watching and listening. We will be back with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it is always available as a podcast. Head on over to Locals where we're going to ask your questions to Nigel that you and you only are going to hear the answers to. Take care and see you soon. I would like to know if the professor sees any improvement in academia since the last time you were on the show. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.